What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers podcast. More people than ever are building cool stuff online and making a lot of money in the process. And on this show, I sit down with these indie hackers to discuss the ideas, the opportunities, and the strategies they're taking advantage of so the rest of us can do the same. We're here with Patrick Campbell, the founder of ProfitWell, a very popular let's say, set of tools that helps other companies improve their revenue growth. So uh, if you've got a subscription company, ProfitWell will help you reduce the number of cancellations. It'll help you uh, figure out your pricing. It'll give you reports and stuff to just help you basically make money. And Patrick came on the podcast years ago. It's been a while, Patrick. And you shared the story behind ProfitWell. But then a few weeks ago, you emailed me with some uh, secret at the time, but now not so secret information that you have gone from being an indie hacker to being an indie hacker who sold his business for nine figures, not seven figures, uh, not eight figures, uh, but for over... $200 $200 million, I think is the figure. Is that right? Yep. That's crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that sound crazy it's to you? Wild. Does I like, do you, like, when you say that out loud, do you even believe oh. it? That's ridiculous. Oh, it's insane. And to give you guys context, we were like aggressively trying to pay off our house, like very Dave Ramsey. If you ever heard of that guy, he's got some interesting views on like that. I don't always agree with everything, but it was more like, oh, this is a really cool thing to bring my partner and I together. And so in January, we had $15,000 in a paid off house. That was it. Like no stocks, no mutual funds, anything. And then um, sold the company and, and it's very much not now. And it's, it's kind of weird. Um, a lot of shame, like a lot of champagne problems now, like existential <laughs> yeah. crises. Like I was talking to a founder who will go unnamed, but he has a company that is worth many millions of dollars. And I was talking to him on the podcast recently and he is kind of broke. And it's this really interesting thing where you can have this company that's super successful, but you haven't had an exit event, right? You haven't actually sold it like you have, and you're just stressed. And from the outside looking in, everyone's yeah. like, oh, your company's making tens of millions of dollars. You must be rich. And it's like, no, totally. <laughs> actually, I'm broke. No. I'm paying my employees. I'm paying my bills. It's kind of crazy. Well, that's that's something that I'm really curious about. So how does a bootstrapped founder grow a company that that big? Yeah, probably every indie hacker wants yeah. to wants to be where you are. Like, oh, I sold my company for eight figures. <laughs> I think I talked about it on the pod a couple of years ago, but like first principles thinking was like very central and very core to how we thought about things. And I think that the reason for it is because in a bootstrapped environment, like every company bootstrapped or venture backed is resource constrained. I think in a bootstrapped com- company, you are like, you're you're so constrained by so many different things that you have to think about like, what is the best way for me to step through this problem? Or like, what are these priorities that we're going to go after? And what that means is, is like, okay, it's okay for us to spend $200,000 on something, but we're not just going to like spend 200 grand on a test. Like we need to like test it small, then grow it, or like really think through our strategy before we go deploy that capital. I think the other thing that we did really well in the past couple of years that like helped our growth even you know faster than it was, was we kind of started to approach our culture as like philosophical monarchy, I guess is the best way to put it. Um, I originally said dictatorship, but that sounds so aggressive. Um, sounds hostile. (laughs) Yeah. It sounds so much more aggressive than it is. And, And all it means is like, 
we were really accommodating on things, I would argue, like three or more years ago. And what that means is, is like we have we have values, right? We have things that we think are going to give us an advantage to winning, quote unquote, whatever winning is. Like feedback is non-negotiable. We talk a lot about that. The way you receive feedback, very negotiable, but getting the feedback is non-negotiable, right? Um, we really believe in this thing called MCI, most charitable interpretation principle. Like, you know, Channing, if I all of a sudden like you don't like when I say the, the color blue and I'm like, oh yeah, that book was blue and you're like offended. Like, well, the way you handle that situation and the way I handle that situation is really important. It's not like, oh, I should have read Channing's mind and no, he didn't like the color blue. It was more like, no, like Channing should be like, hey man, I, you didn't know this. I don't think he meant anything by it, but like, I don't really like when you say the word blue and I'll be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I'll like not use that color, right? We weren't really- I, I can't relate. Cortland and I never argue. And we definitely don't have a policy of being <laughs> most charitable. Can't yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, your brothers and your twins, which just is a whole nother, I feel like, you know, wrench in the whole situation. But those, those are two really big things that I think like we didn't do as much as we should have like the first couple of years. And then the last few years we really internalized. And the, the latter one meant like, you know, firing some people and like some people quitting because they wanted us to handle certain situations one way. And we were just like, no, like this is how we do things here. We're not saying it's better or worse than what you want to do, but we don't do it that way. And if that's not okay, like let's find you a new job, which it's, it's an uncomfortable thing to do in a bootstrap company because you're like, oh my God, I need everyone recruiting so hard. And, you know, I think it's one of those things that we just had to put, put a stake in the ground, as they say. There's a, I mean, every company to some degree is a government. Right. You've got leadership. You've got people. There's like some need to organize and figure out like how do we make decisions? How do we deal with disputes? How do we treat everybody? Like there's like a de facto government in every company. And any government can have any form, right? There's usually some type of leader. There's it could be a democracy, it could be a republic, it could be a dictatorship or a monarchy, as you say. And I think like in recent times there's been it's it's kind of issues come to the fore because there have been like controversies where the way the employees at the company want things to be run doesn't align with the way leadership wants it to be run. At Coinbase, you saw Brian Armstrong who wrote this giant manifesto almost about like how Coinbase is not a place for political discussions, which goes against the beliefs of quite a large number of people, especially in the tech industry. And like, people quit, people were fired. There's a huge controversy. Um, Basecamp had a similar thing. I don't know if they handled it as as well, but uh, same thing going on there. They did not. They did not handle it well. I'll just throw <laughs> yeah. that, that that controversial opinion out there. I. Yeah, they did not handle it well. But it's a tough situation. There's like not exactly a playbook for how to do this. It's kind of a new, uh, I think, thing. I don't remember there being some huge controversy at ProfitWell. If there was, I might have just missed it. Like, how did you, how do you even make this transition? There was, thank God there was it. But uh, yeah, how do you become a monarch? Probably more of an ol oligarch. Is there an, olig oligarchy, yeah, an oligarchy, I guess, like something yeah. like that? Because it wasn't, it wasn't just me. Like, we had this like small group of folks that like, you know, frankly, were like the top performers. They weren't all like leadership, but they were just the people, right? And I think what we did is we were a writing, we are a writing culture. And so what we did is we would debate, debate things, right? And it was always debating like, like basically on a spectrum, right? Because it, it's never like black and white. Nothing's like black and white. It's all like nuance. It's all like, well, how would we handle this? What are we going to optimize for? All these other stuff, right? And I think the advantage we had is we were like well-intentioned arrogant leaders. And what I mean by that is, let's say someone like had a really hard trouble with most charitable interpretation. Um, we had a situation where, um, you know, someone like 
um, they just used the word girl in the presence of someone like it just offhandedly. Like they were just like, Oh, who is the girl who was on the call? And someone was got very bothered. They went to HR. It was like a huge thing. Right. And, and in that situation, what we should have said is like, listen, like you guys, if you need help talking together, we'll have a manager intermediate HR can intermediate, but you guys got to talk this out because it sounds like this person didn't mean anything by it. It sounds like, you know, this is important to you and maybe they don't know, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I think the way we handled it was like, let's hear it out. Let's like do all these other things. And, and it was one of those things. And this is really controversial. And this is like, unfortunately, this is very controversial. And it was like, no, like we believe in MCI. We believe that it's your job to, if you, if like you can give him in this case, most charitable interpretation, do it. If not like go to a manager to get help. If you can't go to that manager to get help, go to another manager. And then like through all the the layers, you go to HR last, right? Unless it's like an obvious thing where we all have good judgment, right? And so I think like what we used to do is we'd try to like talk to that person and try to like change them, right? And it would it would work with like skills, right? Like if we had a job that needed 50 out of 100 in critical thinking, but the person was at zero, we would go, we can get them to 50 in six months. Like we can help <laughs> them, right? And it was just, again, it's well-intentioned arrogance. And I think what we ended up doing is we started codifying stuff. We started talking about it. We started filtering for it and recruiting. I started doing like all the final interviews and doing some like specific questions to kind of help with it. And then we like had them read the memos before they started and all these other things. And then that kind of like, it kind of filtered most people out. It kind of filtered people out. And then the people who were there that didn't jive with it. Like we only had to let go one person. Um, and then two other people like quit. Um, it wasn't this big controversial thing. Um, it just was like us getting the backbone to like defend our values, which it sounds scary even saying it because it sounds like, Oh, what are these crazy values? Like they're not that insane. They're just like, you know, they're just basic stuff, but we just start defending it. It's funny. You, you said that you're not a lot like the base camp situation, but there's one sense in which you are and one sense in which you're not. The sense in which you are is what it sounds like is there was just sort of no system uh, for, for hashing this out. So it was just like, okay, we're just going to go ahead and hash it out. And one of the things that, that DHH talked about with his situation is they just kind of were this, this open forum. We can all debate these, these random things. And that was what was controversial. We put the kibosh on that. Hey, listen, if you're at work, we're talking about work. If you have political opinions, talk about it outside. <laughs> the sense in which you're not like uh, Basecamp is that you didn't write a big public blog post kind of declaring to the world outside of your company what your policies were. But now you've got this system. You, 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 have, you have these ideas and you had to get rid of some people that, that didn't jive with it. But are you now kind of more systematic? Like, you know, does it seem like these frustrations are still bubbling under the surface and you just kind of like, hey, listen, this is these are the rules or? Yeah, I think it's, so there's, there's, there's two things, Run Like one, I think we actually, we, we did have a, assist because this wasn't like a moment perfectly in time it was kind of like building like we had the memos we just didn't defend them right like and then we had like a couple of memos we needed to write and then we needed to add it to the hiring right and so yeah we didn't we didn't have like a pure system and then it didn't get implemented overnight right i think the last thing was just having the courage to like actually hire based on culture which is everyone tells you to do but you just never have the courage to do it and I also don't think you understand it. I think it's one of those wisdom things. Like you can hear tons of podcasts of people telling you like, no, 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 you shouldn't hire that person because they don't fit your culture. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh crap, I learned that lesson, right? I And, and even on the Basecamp memo, it's kind of funny. We wrote our own version internally, 
basically the our memo was you can debate and talk about whatever you want. You are not entitled to anyone having your opinion. You're not allowed to get overly offended if someone has a differing opinion than you. But also keep in mind, this is our mission, like to help subscription businesses grow automatically. That's our mission. That's what we're doing within these four walls and whatever we can do within these four walls to help with that, including different initiatives and stuff, we absolutely will do that. And so like, I think that was kind of the take is like whenever something would bubble up, we would like, hey, here's what we think. If you don't agree and we also have a feedback culture, like let us know, right? Now where this is getting a little little hairy, right, um, is we were 85 people at ProfWell. Now we're 350 people at a venture-backed like you know, paddle, uh, company, venture back company. Right. And so all of a sudden now it's like, we did a lot of this, like, okay, do we kind of think about the same things, um, as each other and like diligence and like pre-diligence. Right. But now it's like the rubber hits the road. Right. And now we're 350 people. There's all types of different managers. Like we're a minority of the group. Right. Like, and so it's like, yeah, like Faku's running product. I'm on the board and on the exec team, but like, how much of this can we push for? How much of it can we? Is it change when we're 350 people? Because some of this stuff, you just, your sensitivities do have to go up, right? And, you know, I mean, only Apple, I think, has the backbone to be like, yeah, we don't care, like get back in the <laughs> office or whatever it right. is. And even then they faltered on yeah. it, right? And so, yeah, I think it's I think it's tough. So I think like when you are defending your values, you will lose people and you will not be able to hire folks. But the giant overarching thing of this entire conversation, we're talking about tech jobs, like it's like the most privileged subset of all jobs in the world, right? Like we're talking about like, oh, you're getting, you know, $90,000 to answer support tickets, right? <laughs> like you're not digging ditches for $35,000 a year, right? Like, and so I think at the end of the day, like I always hold that in context because I think it's like, okay, yes, it's, it's not unimportant some of these things, but it's also like, you know, it's okay. Like if someone can't find a job like here, they're going to find a job somewhere else. Like even in this market, maybe this is arrogant to say, but I think of tech jobs as like almost sort of being like an indicator of the future. Like I, I remember like in the early two thousands, like Google is this crazy place to work. Like look at their cafeteria. They've hired professional chefs and they've got all these like massage. It was just like mind blown. And then now today it's like, Oh, it's like you could throw a rock in San Francisco and it's hard not to hit a company building that does all of those same things. And as a result of that, like they sort of like push the world forward in a way where like, oh, there's like millions of more jobs that are cushier and nicer because somebody led the way in doing that and others followed their example. So on one hand, it's like definitely true. Okay, these are cushy tech jobs. You know, people should be chill out a little bit. You know, they have it pretty good. But on the other, it's like if you are putting on like a sort of like, I don't know, visionary hat and imagining this future utopian world where work is the best thing it could possibly be. It's like you, in a way, are helping to create that and shape what that's going to look like. And I guess a part of your vision is that, you know, don't let me put words in your mouth, but like when you come to work, it's for work. And when you come to work, you're expected to be a grown-up and resolve your own disputes and be an adult and not necessarily look for leadership to solve all of your problems. What's funny about what you say and the, the, the guttural reaction is Google also did, they were the ones to start the whole bring your whole self to work concept. Like that was a big thing, right? And this, this is a huge wave, right? So w the problem with the base camp situation, and I would argue like we didn't go, you shouldn't talk about politics work. You want to talk about politics work? Let's, let's do it. Let's do it at lunch. Let's do it in Slack channels. I don't care, right? I think the issue is we expect people to bring their whole selves to work. Then they bring their whole selves to work. And then we're surprised when part of themselves is like, 
their culture, their stuff that's happening in the world, all these other things, right? And then you have all these compounding things about mental health and all kinds of stuff that are on top of it, right? And so I think the addendum that I would give is like, I think you, and this is a little scary, you will have companies that will be more, I don't know if they're open, but more obvious in how they think and they work. And I think that some companies will be for people who like love their craft, they love their job, they like, they love that. And that's kind of where the culture orientates them around. And there might be like two groups inside a company, right? Where you have that group and then you have, like we called them nine to fivers inside ProfitWell and we called them like careerists. And the nine to fivers, it wasn't none of this pejorative. Nine to fivers, it's like they want a great job, great pay, but don't talk to them on Friday night, don't talk to them on Saturday, whatever. The careerists, they were like, can we work this weekend? Can we work on this thing? Can you like show me how you did that thing like on Saturday? Like they were like that style. They wanted 10 years of a career in two years, right? And I think it's like, that should be okay. Like you should you should be able to open with it. And I think what happens is on an individual level, people feel insecure about being a nine to fiver because they see what careerists get and then they're insecure about, oh, the careerists are able to, you know, to, to get advanced, right? But I think it's it's gonna be more of like, you'll either have jobs that are mostly automated or like, unfortunately like more menial right like this is where the amazon you know warehouse stuff is coming into play you'll have jobs that are pretty casual um and maybe it's the future vision of like oh i have multiple different freelance jobs basically where i used to maybe have one full-time job and then you'll have careers where people are like no i want to like go all in and i don't know i think it's i think it's really interesting um and finding a culture like if you think about Snow Crash, right? Like Snow Crash has been the news past couple of years again. It's like, oh, you almost align with your company like a religion or like a, a, a statehood. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if we'll go that far, but I don't know. It's interesting. Think, it's interesting to think about. That was like the, the, that was like the mafia was a company, right? So like, <laughs> yeah, the pizza part of the mafia. It was the pizza mafia. The pizza mafia. Yeah, yeah. It was the pizza. They ran the pizza shop. Wasn't there like a fried right? chicken and, one too? It was like yeah, KFC slash. Mafia. I can't. There's like, yeah, there's like a number of others. It's it's a great, the world that uh, I think it's he, the world he created is just fantastic. Um, yeah. The, the story was like, oh, that's interesting. The world was more interesting, at least yeah. to me. I think you're right. You mentioned that people sort of underestimate culture. It's like one of those things that's like, it comes from wisdom and experience. Like you make the mistake and you learn the hard way. And no matter how many people on a podcast sit around and pontificate about how you should do this, it's like, yeah, it just kind of like washes over you if you're listening. You're like, I'll think about that later. Like, I'm just trying to get my business to work. But like what I think about, like at least what I've been thinking about a lot recently is that culture is everywhere. Like even in our friend groups, it's like a prime example of culture. Like I've been like introducing a lot of my friends to each other this year and I have friends from all walks of life. I know a bunch of starving artists. I know a bunch of entrepreneurs running billion dollar companies. I know a bunch of sex workers. I know a bunch of like just, like circus performers. And like I'll bring them <laughs> all into like a house together and like try to like have them fit. That's awesome. And it's fun. That's it's, so cool, it's super actually. fun. Everyone's like kind of shocked awesome. and like whatever. I'm like, oh, you meet this person, you meet this person. They're so different. You know, some people want to go on like a 10 mile bike ride in the morning. Some people want to like, you know, chug beers until they're drunk at 2 p.m. Some people want to go do shrooms. Some people want to watch movies and dissect the culture behind it. And the thing is, like, in point of fact, despite like my wildest optimistic dreams, it doesn't always work. Like, there are some people who just like don't want to be in the same room as other people. And when I think about like a company culture, it's like, arguably the kind of the, kind of the same thing like if you have a group of like 10 people who you really like you can kind of make sure the people you all drive with they drive with each other 
and it works really well because you're there to enjoy each other's company. If you have like a 300 person company or a thousand person company, like, is it even possible to bring that many people together in a way where everybody brings their whole selves to work and it actually works? And it's not just a bunch of conflicting cultures and opinions. Like when I think about companies that are that big, that are like uniformly the same, I think of like the empire from Star Wars with like Darth Vader at the top and everybody's a clone, you know, like, does that actually work in real life? I think the ones that have been successful, like we always talk about like tech companies, right? But there's like tons of companies that are enormous, like headcount wise that are actually doing like, I, they're controversial for lots of reasons, but like Coke Industries, like Coke Industries is an extremely successful company. They have like, gosh, it's gotta be hundreds of divisions, if not a thousand divisions, right? Like different products and these types of things. And like, I think what they did is and they're also like a very libertarian because it's the Koch brothers, right? For all their baggage, you know, they, they run a company, by the way. That's how they became billionaires, right? And I think that what's really interesting about their structure, if you kind of read anything about them, is like they kind of do it based on like almost a city structure. So they they focus like at the top more on like the leaders of each group. Like and another one is Disney. Like Disney Eisner, what he talked about is like everyone on the exec team should be able to be the CEO. Like that's how you create a great exec team, right? Mm. And then I think what that does is if that culture can like cascade down and if you choose like almost like the core principles, like almost the first principles of how you're going to grow and then just like cascade that down, there's always going to be like bugs, right? Um, But you have systems in place to handle those bugs. And I think that when you look at like Google, for instance, like Google had like a lot of backlash the past two years that Microsoft didn't, right? We made fun of Microsoft for a few things, but they didn't have like the worker revolts as much as Google did. And I don't know if I know the answer as to why that is, but like, that's interesting. Like we should explore that. I think Google, I worked at Google and it's it's a fantastic company. They pay you more than you're worth for what you're doing. And they like, treat you like it's Disneyland every day. And it's amazing. But it's one of those things that I think that they... um for lack of a better phrase, like I think they they were like, bring yourself to work to an extreme. Then everyone started bringing themselves to work in front of the entire company at all hands. And that just created a lot of consternation where you had some people who really cared arguing and then other people who just wanted to do their jobs, like, con- like just kind of distracted. And it, you just created this cocktail where the balance was off, I think. Whereas maybe Microsoft's figured out the balance. I don't know. I remember seeing this uh, this old diagram of how different tech companies are organized. And I can't remember the way that Google looked, but I remember... Is that the city and the network yeah. one? And like but I remember like Microsoft's yeah. on there mm-hmm. was a bunch of different like little fiefdoms with guns pointed at each other. <laughs> and maybe that is like the yeah. thing you're talking about, where it's like... I'm not saying it's fun to work there, but they don't seem to have these Well, issues, I, I think right? that's right, because like, maybe it's like what that's saying. It's like, yeah. this is not one monolithic entity. Sure, it has a name. Sure, to the public, it's a monolithic entity. But when you're part of it... Maybe you can't organize 100,000 people to all be the same culture the same way. Like maybe they have to have distinct teams that are just different from each other. Yeah, you probably shouldn't. And if you have those distinct teams that are different from each other, you probably create like, quote unquote, a safe space for anyone at the company where they can just work for the team that's right for them rather than everybody trying to appeal to the leadership during the all hands meeting saying, we should, this is how I feel. And therefore, you should feel this way, leadership. And therefore, you should dictate that onto literally all 100,000 people or 1,000 people or 100 people at the company. I think it's also one of those things where not all, like I would argue, like you can pick your principles, you can pick your values, obviously, but not all principles or values are created equal. Like, for example, like, yes, we have this philosophical monarchy that I'm describing or this oligarchy, right? But 
like our values are like debate, feedback, like no top-down decisions. Like all decisions are like with the person who's on the front line, right? That's a very different culture than like a very top-down, like gun-pointing type culture that I think some people end up having. And it's also very different than like the five-person indie company that like it's four contractors and the founder, right? Like it's all very, very different. And I think it's like as you scale into different areas from what you want as a human individual, as a founder, and then what you like, what is expected to get towards that outcome, you have to align on those particular things. Like, I don't think you can create a truly top-down culture for 10,000 people, let alone 100,000 people. It just won't work. Let's get on to like a more advice-driven topic because a lot of people who listen to this show are early stage founders. And I remember back in the day, like we used to do these office hours things. Do you remember those? Like on YouTube, we would get, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I guess we'd get on a Zoom call and you did one. And a bunch of like early founders came in and just asked you questions. You've been through the entire gamut. You've gone from indie hacker to you know nine figure exit. Now you're a cool rich guy who can sit on the mountaintop and talk about how to do it. Uh, <laughs> what do you think indie hackers need? I'm still writing BDR emails, by the <laughs> okay, way. So don't okay. worry. Still, like it doesn't get glamorous. Still like the rest I'm still of writing us. blog posts and emails. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. What do you think fledgling founders need to hear? And I'm, I'm not talking about the stuff that like is necessarily the obvious advice that everybody knows and isn't doing. But like, what are some things that, you know, like maybe some of these things that we'll hear on a podcast and we'll just never do, but we need to hear it anyway. Like what are people not doing right that you think they could be doing better? I think um, we talked about this a little bit. The know thyself concept is so important. And what I mean by that is like, you want to push $250,000 a year and work 20 hours a week. Fantastic. You want to try to build a $100 million company? Fantastic. But like, know what is required by looking at the people who have done that and stick with that, right? I think that the, the biggest issue I see with some founders and one of the hardest conversations I have with like founder friends sometimes or like people asking for advice is, is around this topic of like, okay, well, like what's your calendar look like, right? And it's like personal thing, personal thing, personal thing, personal thing, <laughs> personal thing. It's like, well, okay. So you only work 15 hours a week. Okay. Yeah. Like that's, that's okay. Don't get me wrong. That's awesome. Right. You can make a living, right? That's amazing. Like you could like Cortland, you were kind of saying this before, like you could make a live a really good living off of, you know, where, you know, finding that sweet spot of like working the least for the lifestyle you want. That's great. But I have never met like someone who got to an eight figure exit, let alone a nine figure exit who didn't like put the time in and like work their ass off. Right. And it wasn't just like work smarter. It was also work harder, right? Like it was also time, right? And, and there's there's a point where it's like, yes, like vacation stuff. But like I haven't, and I'm not saying I like, this is the only way to do it, but like I haven't been on a vacation in three and a half years. And I'm not saying that's good. I'm just saying like, that was like what I thought the business needed. And I'm a little bit of a workaholic. So I'm a little bit of an outlier, but I, amongst at least my friends, like until they realized they just want to do a profit business, the ones who are trying to go for like, big and growth, the ones who are venture backed, like they all work extremely hard. And I think that's a really big thing is like, you got to understand what it takes or at least what it has taken for other people to see if you want to be in that like general direction, if that makes sense. I have a friend who was a, um, a Gates scholar and he got to meet Bill Gates in, in college. And my friend was very ambitious, uh, but he always talked, he always bragged about being kind of lazy, about how smart he was and he could do all these things, but he wasn't working that hard. And then he met Bill Gates and Bill Gates told him that exact thing, which is like, look, depending on like how successful you want to be, like you're going to be competing against people who are not only equally as smart as you, but also work super duper hard. And if you don't have both of those things, it's like sort of hard to reach those upper echelons. Well, and I think that like 
we all have indie hacker friends who they have seven projects. That's amazing. Go do seven projects. That's awesome. One of them's going to pop. Like it's not luck. It's just iteration. That's great. Awesome. Right. But it's also like, I don't know, at some point you got to go all in on something, right? If you want, if you want that exit, if you want that like big thing, if you want like, you know, good exits. And again, like it's all relative, right? Like a million dollar exit is amazing. It's life changing, right? Um, you know, maybe you don't have to work as hard, but some people, they work their butt off just for a million dollar exit. Right. And, and that's kind of what it takes is like when you have everyone somewhat equal, you know, on all these variables, like that's the one factor that's differentiating. I think, I think the other thing is like before I went in, so I, I worked for the government as my first job. I worked in us Intel, which I know we talked about on the last pod a little bit. And then, um, and then that's how I got into tech. I never wanted to go into business, but when I was in college, I was going to go get like my PhD in economics, which thank God I didn't do that. But that was like the thing I wanted to do. It was that or political rhetoric, which again, <laughs> I was just going to be an academic because I was like, you know, let's go read books and write that's too long thing. papers. Dude, it's a great, great Channing. I actually think you would like that field um, based on some of the things you've said in the pod the past few episodes. Um, I'll send you some readings. Cortland, I know you're the frat boy. So, like, you won't. No, I'm just kidding. Anyways, but uh, long story short, I think that like the reason I brought that up is because if you're not approaching your field as like, I would argue almost like an academic or a professor or like whatever it is, I, I think you're doing it wrong because your job is to like just fill yourself with so much data, right? Read paper, read blog posts, read books, read like academic papers. If your field has those things, like learn from people who are better at you than engineering. And I think that that's like, that's the thing that like, I think I did a little bit differently. Like I didn't know anything about pricing. I didn't know a damn thing about pricing when I started this company. Now, like I probably know, you know, I have, I'm uncomfortable with, you know, saying something like this, but I probably know more about like SaaS or subscription pricing than most people out there. Right. And it was not because like, I'm just smart. It was because like, I read grueling academic papers on pricing theory. Um, I read like all these other things and like studied them. I have flashcards, right? Like I have all these different things, right? And I think a lot of founders, there's so much going on. You don't like focus on like, oh, I need to like know my craft, whether that's a specific type of craft, like marketing or like engineering or like my industry, if that makes sense. If you go too broad, you can't go deep. The thing that I love I think the most about about your advice. First off, it's like it's advice, but it's like meta advice, right? It's like you're gonna have to work hard. And one of the th one of my pet peeves is that everyone that I know who's an indie hacker who's successful, um, or who's successful at a lot of other things in a lot of other fields that it's difficult to be successful at them, is that they had to work their asses off while they were working, while they were climbing, at least at some points in those uh, periods over the arc of them developing their skills or, or reaching their goals, they had to not really have really good work-life balance. And yet, one of the things that I, of, I often see um, among indie hackers is like when someone will become really successful and then once they're at the top, it's almost kind of like they pull the ladder up and they're like, ah, oh, you know, we've got this work-life balance Sleep. problem. We, uh, everyone, things, yeah, yeah every, everyone. That's me. You're describing it's like, me. It's, I'm like, it's take correct. it easy. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's correct, but it's, it's like uh, it has like the wrong... <laughs> It like misses part of the story. It's an incomplete story. It's like I yeah. get to sleep about. I get to sleep now, and I get to work on like work life balance because I'm you know sort of re you know resting on my laurels. And to connect that to the other uh, insight that you had, which is 
you know, a lot of the, the people who, who achieve this, the way that they're able to achieve it in a way that's at least sustainable, sustainable enough that they become successful at it is that they're in a field where they can be obsessed. They're, they're in a field where they can just do this crazy research and all that stuff. I don't think it's difficult in theory to, to you know, sort of do research and like become a professor at stuff. If you are in a field where, as you as you said it, like, you know, you're a craftsman at this thing, you naturally do that. Let me push back against this a little bit, though. Just from my own personal story, the reason Indie Hackers was blew up in the earliest days of Indie Hackers wasn't because I was working 80 hours a week, which I was doing. It was because I was in the right place at the right time intentionally because I did a lot of market research to try to figure out what the right idea was. And then I worked 80 hours a week because there's other things I wasn't sure about. And I was kind of, but that's work. I was, but that's. I effort. was putting in a lot of effort, but a lot of that effort was wasted. Like in hindsight, even at the time, like I wrote detailed logs about hourly tracking on the earliest days of the Andy Hacker's blog, and you could see where every hour went. And a lot of the effort that I put in was wasted because I didn't make good decisions. And if I had been a little bit more disciplined and taken more time to make better decisions, some of those decisions were obviously really bad. Like one of the things I didn't do very often was but like they, I didn't talk to mentors. Yeah. There are people I could have talked to who would have given me several answers so quickly and so easily, but because I emotionally was in a place where I just, I need to do it all myself, like I worked harder, not smarter. Yeah, but that's the thing. But that's the thing. Like that, that's wisdom. In order to learn that wisdom, the pro, if in hindsight, I start ProfitWell over just again. I have none of the like base. I just have the knowledge. I can shave three years off our trajectory, guaranteed. Three years. Because you didn't know the piece of advice or the piece of the thing that was going to unlock the thing, right? You had to go through all the like, and that's the, that's the other thing, right? It's persistence. It's resilience. And it, it's a tricky thing, right? Because there's people who like, you know, they leverage their life savings and their mortgage, their house, and they're going and there's no traction, right? Like, and that's a situation where you should probably stop, right? But I think in terms of knowledge, like, I had the same thing. Oh, I don't want to ask for help because, you know, I don't know. I have to do it myself. And then as soon as I ask for help, oh, everyone's been through this. Okay. <laughs> like I can, I can ask it. Right. But I think Channing, one of the things you said, and, and maybe Cortland, I don't know, you might disagree with this, um, is I think the reason people pull up the ladder is because no one wants to admit that work-life balance is probably the wrong way to think about, like, it's just the wrong framework. It's completely the wrong framework. It made so much sense when it was nine to five, white picket fence, you know, all that other stuff. It made so much sense. Now we're on a podcast at, what is it? 2 p.m. Pacific shooting the shit. Corlin doesn't even have sleeves on his shirt, <laughs> right? I'm in shorts. I haven't showered in two days, like just to throw that out there. Like, and we're just chilling, like talking about stuff, mm -hmm. right? And what that means is, is it's just a different world, right? Like this is balance, right? Like I, I was talking to another founder Friday and we were both talking about, hey, like we don't really have a lot of like close friends. We have like five close friends. Mm -hmm. And it's because like we love what we do and we found our friends with the people who we do, right? And then there's people like Jenny, my better half, she has 30 friends. She's got so many friends. Mm -hmm. Like she's invited to every wedding, right? It's just different strokes. And I think that's the thing that like we get wrong, not only with our teams, but with ourselves of like, what's the lifestyle we want? What is the best hedge against that lifestyle? And we can change whenever we want. That's another, that's why the framework sucks too. We can change, right? Like I haven't taken a vacation in a while. I will guarantee you the rest of this year, I'm probably not going to work as hard as I did a year ago because like I, I got to like balance it a lot. I got to like pace myself a little bit, right? To me, this is the main value proposition of running your own company. I mean, it's cool to yeah. make a lot of money. It really is. It's cool to... 
um, do you know whatever have a big following or whatever it is that a lot of super superficial benefits of it are. But to me, I completely agree with you. I was actually I'm, I think I'm in the middle of writing it. I haven't figured out the controversial title yet, but a post about how <laughs> I, I don't how believe the in the concept sign. of work life balance. <laughs> Yeah, it's I don't. Bullshit. I, well, it's I, bullshit. No one's no one's willing to. Admit I think that. It, except for I Chan think it's like it. what it is. As you said, I think it's that there are contexts. Like if if I worked a nine to five and I felt that I didn't have a lot of options and I'm doing this thing, sort of reluctantly dragging my feet, doing this thing to pay the pay the bills, um, then I might say that. But you know, it's like a, it's, I can't wait for I can't wait for Saturday, right? Or on Sunday, I can't. You know, it's I can't. I don't want to go to sleep because tomorrow's Monday. Um, but the cool thing about what we do is especially if we hit a certain level of sort of sustainability is we get to craft our own lives. And so the way that I look at it is I don't look at it as work and life. Everything that I do is just my projects. And so I want to find some balance, but that's because if I work all day, my girlfriend just walked in the room and rolled her eyes. Like I'm working again. Right. Yeah. So it's like, that's one of my projects. My, per, my, my relationship, the relationship that I manage with people that's, you know, if left to my own devices, not thinking about it, I'm probably going to neglect that a little bit more than I like to. So I have to be a little bit conscious about it. There's a certain amount of work that I want to do, but I kind of got to do the work that I need to do and not always just the, you know, the, the fun coding think, things or like blogging yeah. things. There's a lot of like management. It's work life fit. And that's the thing that like, I think that's a thing you have to learn as just a 20 something, 30 something, hopefully you learn it in your twenties, you can choose your friends. I lost friends because of starting this company. They weren't really friends, but I thought they were friends at the time. They wanted me to go out every night. I just didn't want to do that. It wasn't me. Like it wasn't me. Like maybe it was me at a time, right? I lost a partner because it just wasn't the lifestyle she wanted. And I was like, oh no, like I, I like this craft. I like to go after my craft and it's, it's not going to change. So like she thought I was going to change. I knew I wasn't going to change. And like, you know, and I think it's communicating as well. It's what a lot of people, they miss. And this is what caused a lot of like problems in interpersonal relationships. When I started dating Jenny, third date, hey, this is the lifestyle. This is how I think about things. These are the bounds. These are the things that are probably not going to change, like with kids, everything. But here's the advantages, flexibility, all this other stuff. I'm so happy when I'm with you, I am with you, like all those other things, right? And I think that that's, if you communicate, you've done the introspection to understand like what you want, whatever it is, and and you surround yourself with the people that are there. Like I think that's that's true like indie happiness, I would argue. That's good founder happiness, whether you're an indie hacker or not, I would argue. I'm glad you said work-life fit because like I do think that there's this vision that like okay, you have to be miserable in order to start a company that, that's successful. Like you have to be working so hard that you don't like it. But if there's a good fit, like if the people around you, like Channing is a good example. Yeah. Working on indie hackers with Channing, the very first person I brought on, has made indie hackers like a joy to work on because he's my brother and we love just talking about philosophical stuff and debating, et cetera. We love being on the podcast together. That doesn't hinder my work in any way. In fact, it makes it much better. It just fits in with my life a lot better. And I think people underestimate the degree to which like if you're an indie hacker and you're a founder, you can do literally anything that you want. As long as it doesn't like violate the laws of physics, like you can structure your business that way, and hopefully, you yeah. know, you'll structure it in a way that like the market. I'd argue the laws of laws, <laughs> the laws. as well, the laws of men as yes, well. But... Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah people yeah. need to actually want what you're. I mean, you can. Yeah. It's going to get you in trouble. <laughs> it yeah. might get you. You might go to jail. But point is, like, you can structure a business that fits with the life that you want. And you can ask yourself these questions at the beginning and say, "What kind of life do I want to live?" Like when I started Indie Hackers, like I knew I didn't want to start a mission critical business where people's lives are dependent on my website staying up with 99.999% uptime because I know that's going to translate into me being stressed out all the fucking time when my website inevitably goes down. 
those can be good businesses. Those businesses tend to have really good retention. They tend to serve like really important niches. But like that's not what I wanted for myself. And I think very few founders ask themselves these questions. They don't do what you said, Patrick, which is to study the people who are successful, see what it's like to be that person, see what it's like to get there and ask, is that the kind of life that I want to live? Well, and I think it's because you you start with like, oh, this is a cool idea. And you're like, oh, cool. And then you have the vision of like the beginning, the cool, the coolness and the first code and the landing page. And then you have this vision of like, the social network or Moneyball <laughs> or like all these right. other like, you know, movies that guys don't like to admit how many times they watch them. Right. And so it's like one of those things where like you have the ends and they're both really exciting. And then this messy middle. Right. And I think that, I don't know. I think like, that's why it's really interesting when you look at like second time founders, no matter if the first thing was successful or a failure, like they're less accommodating on like for themselves or less accommodating for their teams. They like kind of structure things like, and I think a lot of first time founders, you're, you're, you're struggling to learn these things while you build, which they're hard lessons. And hopefully like you luck into learning them with the right mentors, advisors, et cetera. But sometimes like you go up in a ball of flame and then you have like a year of like existential crisis. Cause you're like, what happened? Like, I don't know what happened. And it's hard. It's really hard. Speaking of existential crisis, 10 years running profit well. You sold it for, you know, eye-popping amounts of money. What now? Like what what do the next 10 years look like? Um, good question. Um, I'm at Paddle. I want to stay till IPO, at least, if not longer, mainly because I, I've always loved building. Like I like the building part. I think I started becoming an entrepreneur because I thought, like, oh, if I'm gonna work my butt off, like I want to get paid, but then like I think you quickly realize like there's easier ways to make money than like grinding. And I was always enamored with like, cool, we solved this problem. Oh, we got faster at this. Oh, we compounded that. Like I love those problems. And I think I want to see that from this point to IPO just to see what that looks like. And if I like it, right? Because if I want to swing again, I I don't know if I want to like, all right, we're going to create a hundred person company and that's what it's going to be profit sharing. Or if it's like, no, 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 let's go for an IPO again. But beyond that, or maybe on the side hustle, I'm very fascinated with like two areas. Um, one is like broadly defense, which sounds scary, like defense companies, those types of things. But I think with my experience in, in working in the Intel community, I think it's like there's a lot of things around like cybersecurity. There's a lot of things around like personal security, I would argue, that are like really important, but not enough people are working on them because it's like defense and it sounds scary. And then the other area is really around like I guess the broad category would be like democracy and like freedom of information. Um, I think that's like an area that like... So you're dealing with really, really minor, trivial topics. <laughs> <laughs> There's this speech that I always come back to and I suggest people read. I should have brought it up in the previous conversation. Of Teddy Roosevelt gave this talk. It was the doctrine of a strenuous life. And this kind of like houses the entirety of all of my views, I feel, in the past like hour. And it's basically like... If you've been given the ability, and he was given the speech in front of like people at a press club, like all these like hoity-toity folks, and he's basically like, listen, you're all in a good position. You've been given a gift, no matter if you're rich or like middle class or whatever. Like, therefore, you must not live a life of ease. You must like do hard things, go after hard things. And so now it's like, no, like if I can like help fix democracy or help, and that's such a loaded term, but if I can help the way elections are run, specifically how campaign finance is run, because I think that's a really interesting problem because everyone's trying to solve it through public means. And like 
you're asking the barber to stop giving haircuts. Like it makes no sense, right? Like rather than like solving it from a private perspective. Um, and then there's this other thing. And whenever I get a chance, I like to talk about it. Um, so forgive me for a small diatribe, but like Aaron Swartz, I don't know if you yeah, remember Aaron Swartz, he, um, like Reddit or one of the co or early employees, I don't know technically if he was a co-founder, but he, um, he was involved with like SOPA and PIPA, but he also was like, he got his exit from Reddit and he started buying public information and just setting it free because this is a big thing that people don't realize. Like there's a lot of court records that people need for like even public defenders that are behind paywalls and it's free, the information, but you have to pay like a processing fee basically. So he started buying that stuff and it was all legal. Um, at least it was gray. Um, and then, you know, he did a JSTOR thing and had a prosecutor, Carmen Ortiz, who was trying to like Ruin his life. scare him and then he took his own life. Yeah. And it was definitely over prosecution. Like JSTOR didn't want to sue him. MIT didn't want to sue him, but she chose to keep going. Um, at least in my opinion, I need to say for defamation purposes. But yeah, long story short, I think that there's like stuff there because we have all this information now, like the cost of that information is like important to come down. And I think the cost of information coming down also helps election costs as well. I checked out the, spree, the speech and the sort of main point in the opening remarks. He says, I wish to preach not the doctrine of ignoble ease, but the doctrine of the strenuous life, the life of toil and effort of labor and strife to preach at the highest form of success, which comes not to the man who desires mere easy peace, but to the man who does not shrink from danger, from hardship, or from bitter toil. And who out of these wins the splendid ultimate triumph? That's amazing. Um, people that are listening to the podcast can hear this, but um, this is my favorite quote. It's from this guy named Nicholas Hobbes, and it's like the mirror image of, of that Love same it. concept, which is he was a psychologist in like the 1960s. And it is, one should choose trouble for oneself in the direction of what one would like to become at a level of difficulty close to the edge of one's competence. And that's great. Th and like that's supposed to be like the way that you strike that perfect balance in, in life. And it, so it's awesome that you've had this, again, <laughs> ridiculous exit and that you're doing exactly what everyone who knows what happiness is made out of, which is you're stepping your game up and you're looking for the next challenge that's at the level that you've yeah. leveled up to. And so. There was something actually, Channing, Thanks, you said man. on the Andy Akers Forum the other day that I responded to you in this vein, which is that like, you know, a lot of times you'll see soldiers who are in war, and war is this terrible, scary thing. It's awful, right? You know, like most of the people that I know who are in the military, like who've been to war, spend a lot of time thinking about like that day they finally come home, how great that's going to be. And then often when people come home, like normal life seems aimless. It seems like what's the purpose? I had this band of people that it was like literally life or death every day with, and now that I'm home and safe, like that's great. There's nothing bad about that, but it's like. Where is that strife? Where is that like challenge that I'm fighting against? You know, it's it's almost like a, a ridiculous comparison to make, but like some parts of the analogy are true. That like as a founder, if you've been going through the shit for years and it's been tough and you're struggling to survive, and then after you're done, you're like, okay, well now I'm like made a boatload of money. <laughs> like, what do I do? It could be a similar like aimless feeling, you know. And I, I think this idea. So here's some a, veteran from Afghanistan. Is I, I just pissed to this off a whole bunch of people <laughs> throwing his computer <laughs> across the room. <laughs> it's basically the exact I do same think, thing. Here's. Yeah, yeah. You know what's really funny? Like, it's not funny, but in that vein, fun anecdote. Not really that fun. Talk to thirty folks in making this decision to to sell. All of them had sold. All of them had made something. Fifteen said they wouldn't have sold the company if they had to do it over again. I think it's they have the money, so it's kind of like a hard thing to like understand that. Um, I think almost a hundred percent of that fifteen were people who like 
gave the keys and just walked away. The other 15 mm. mostly like went on to the next company. Of the 15 who walked away or so, three of them became addicts, either like drugs, like hard drugs, alcohol, and uh, they're all fine now. Exactly Everyone's good. But like it's it's when you, it's exactly what you're saying, Cortland. It's like when you when you have that void, that purpose, like it's hard I and mean, not everyone's going to become a drug addict. Right. But it's like, it's a tough thing. And I think purpose is so important. It's like someone tweeted today, like they know a couple of 30 to 40 year olds who have retired and all of them are back working because like, you just got to get something going. Even if it's small, it doesn't matter what it is. Like go work at a company, go volunteer. Like, I think it's, it's important to have purpose. Important to have purpose. Well, listen, Patrick, congratulations on your success. Thanks for coming on the show to share some of your thoughts and your advice and your opinions with us. And hopefully people got, as much out of this episode as I did. I had a blast. Where can people go to learn more about what you're up yeah. to now uh, at both ProfitWell and, and outside of that? Yeah, I'm just Paticus, P-A-T-T-I-C-U-S on Twitter. Childhood nickname, long story. So I'll just leave it at that. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Paticus.